This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Mark Lanier. So he is an attorney, author, teacher, and pastor. He founded the Lanier Law Firm and is a recipient of the American Association of Justice's Lifetime Achievement Award. He also was named nine years in a row to the U.S. News and World Report's Best Lawyers in America list, and he was inducted into the National Trial Lawyers Hall of Fame. So this guy knows his way around a courtroom. He certainly knows his way around a legal book. Uh, This guy has used a lot of his legal prowess to be able to win a lot of cases and a lot of high profile cases, but he also used his legal prowess to delve into the world of religion. So he wrote a trilogy of books to help people understand why Christianity stands above all the other worldviews and religions. And so the three books were written in kind of in this order. So the first one is Christianity on trial. The next one is atheism on trial. And then the third one is Religions on Trial. So Religions on Trial, this is the book that is going to be the main scaffolding for our discussion here today. But we do talk about his legal career and kind of how he got into that. But then specifically, he was a Christian for the entirety of his legal career. So how does that work out? Because a lot of people think lawyers just lie. They're going to do whatever they need to to win the case or regardless of what the truth says. So I really liked his answers in terms of how that went. I also asked him about kind of how Hollywood depicts what happens in courtrooms and things like that and what some of the misconceptions are. But then we dig into this trilogy of books. He kind of explains Christianity on trial and atheism on trial in brief. And then we really dig into religions on trial because this book covers Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, and then a couple of things he's calling secular spiritualism and secular Christianity. So we talk about kind of the rubric or process that he used to evaluate all these different religions, but then we do get into all those individual ones. Uh, but also during Judaism, we actually discussed something which was really cool. So he was actually good buddies with Justice Antonin Scalia, the late uh, Supreme Court Justice, and he gave an amazing story, an absolutely amazing story. And we could have just flowed the rest of the time just on Antonin Scalia, but we had to get back to everything. Uh, but we ask him, I say we, I ask him about in terms of Islam, the difference between what people would consider extremist Islam versus fundamentalist Islam. We look at kind of the core tenets of Hinduism and Buddhism and how they're, they don't really work out with real life and everyday life. But then we spent quite a bit of time on Mormonism because I really wanted to talk about how Mormonism just seems absolutely preposterous. I don't even understand how it's still a thing. We talk about how they, you know, talk about additional revelation and how they've had a lot of quote unquote additional revelations that came very contemporarily. Right. And so it also worked in with some changes that were happening in culture and how that doesn't make a lot of sense. But then I also draw a line between Mormonism and a lot of woke liberal churches and kind of ask the question, well, Mormons are just adding stuff on top of the scripture, just like liberal, modern, woke churches. So what exactly is the difference? And then we talk a little bit at the end and he gave a great gospel presentation when talking about secular spiritualism and secular Christianity. So I really, really enjoyed my time with Mark today. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Mark Lanier, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, Kyle, it's great to be on your show. Thanks for taking the time. I'm absolutely excited to talk to you today. We're going to dig into a bunch of things today, but it'd be really remiss of me to not start where the majority of people know you, which is your legal career. So I'm always interested when people go into the military or go into ministry or go into any type of profession like that. Why did you choose it? Why did you stick around? Because there are a lot of people that went to law school that aren't practicing anymore. So for you, what, I guess, drew you to the world of law? I, I think probably it started with my uh, seemingly natural argumentative ability. So parents out there, you got that kid that likes to argue. Just channel them. Let them become yeah. a lawyer. Uh, uh, I loved uh, debate in high school. I, I mean, I loved athletics as well, but but I seemed to be more suited for debate. And uh, uh, I had a strong sense of justice because I grew up devoted in my faith to a, a just God. And you combine that into some uh, recipe for life. And it seems God had a calling on me to, to put me into the legal field and try to fight for the Davids against Goliath. So let's talk a little bit more about what you just mentioned, because obviously uh, lawyers are punchlines for a myriad of jokes, and most of the jokes have to do with them being dishonest and you know weaving things together to where it's to the benefit of their client, not to the benefit of truth or actual justice. So for you, being a man of faith, uh, I guess, tell me about that. Were you ever at that point where there was that kind of internal dissonance about, ah, oh, man, I, I could go this way and maybe win the case or I can go that way and honor God. It seems like there would be a lot of opportunities to have that dissonance. Well, the dissonance has been avoided for me 99% of my career 
because that dissonance happened one time. It happened in a case where uh, uh, ultimately I was representing a party that had done wrong. And I thought through my legal skill and talent, I might be able to get them off the hook mm. rather than uh, um, have them pay their debt that they owed. Uh, I lost that case. It was my first loss. And it was almost a Damascus Road experience in the sense that I, I had a real come to Jesus moment. And uh, I decided then if I'm going to be in this field and I'm going to do these things, I, I, I'm going to choose clients that I believe in. I'm going to choose the cause that I believe in. And those will be the ones I pursue. Now, once that decision's made, the rest of it takes care of itself. Uh, if I uh, any measure of success that I have found in the legal field, and I, and I probably have uh, uh, more uh, verdicts in terms of dollars than anybody else in, in the history of the, the legal field, um, any of that success, which I do teach to other lawyers, I derive strictly from the idea that I tell the whole truth. I do not go into trial with one side of the truth. I don't go in and present one aspect of the evidence. I don't go in and, and try to persuade people to one thing. The truth is the truth. And if you tell a jury what the full truth is, the jury will do the right thing. And if you're not on the right side in a case, you can't do that. But if you're on the right side, it's the natural and right thing to do. So um, I love the practice of law and I love the way I get to do it. Okay. So Mark, you mentioned, uh, your first loss. Let's talk about losses just in general, in terms of legal cases, because a lot of times, and maybe this is a Hollywood depiction or something like that, but if a attorney, whether it be a prosecutor or a defense attorney, when they lose, it's almost like, oh, they, they've gotten their scarlet letter, but that letter is an L. And it's just like, you know, you carry that, you, that loss around and maybe you don't get the next case, or maybe you're not as favorable when, it, when in the eyes of whoever. So Talk to me about how you deal with losses, because again, most of your cases, or I won't say most, I don't really know, but like a lot of your cases are very high profile. You typically win the high profile cases, but if you take a big loss, it's a lot different losing game seven of the World Series in October than losing a game on a Thursday night in May. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the preseason games, who cares if you win or lose? Uh, um, you know, you can at 162 game baseball season, you can drop a game here and there. You will drop a game. But but the practice of law is no different than almost every aspect of life. There are days and there are times and there are events where you will not win in the sense of succeed in in the eyes of the world. Um but but what we've got to do is we've got to rise above, as a Christian at least, we rise above what worldly vision is. If you look at James chapter 3, James, the brother of Jesus, he's writing this, what, what I and many others believe to be the earliest New Testament writing. He's writing a letter, and in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, he talks about the difference between earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he says, you know, if you're practicing your life out of selfish ambition and, and, and jealousy and, and, and looking at it in terms of how you want to win, then what you're doing is unspiritual. It's earthly. And he even calls it demonic. Hmm. And then he says the wisdom from God that is a, a wisdom from above is very different. And it's a different way of seeing the world. So I may go into a case and I may lose that case in, in the sense of what media portrays or in the sense of how the world sees things. But if I've done what God calls me to do, I've won at that moment, regardless of whether the case turned out the way I wanted it to, because I'm not, I didn't write the script for this world. I'm merely one of the actors who can choose to play my part or not. But God has a much greater plan than I've ever got. So it doesn't matter if it's a courtroom practice of law. It doesn't matter if someone's driving a truck. If there are days that you have success in what you do, and there are days where in the world's eyes you don't. But if you dedicate it all to the glory of God and you seek him and what you're doing, you are winning in eternal ways, whether you are in earthly eyes or not.
Hey guys, real quick, if you were anything like me, you don't like paying for stuff that you think you're capable of doing yourself. So a lot of people end up doing that with their IT at their businesses. And the problem is, is if you're not an expert at it, you can leave yourself open to attacks. So I literally just heard a story about a company that DIY'd their servers and data security and that kind of stuff, and they got hacked. And they had all of their important business files stolen. And they ended up having to pay the hackers $15,000 in ransom money to get their files back. Like seriously, like 15 grand just to be able to run their business. So I don't want this to happen to the business owners in my audience. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends at LMS Tech. So LMS Tech is an IT security company that can help your business with all kinds of IT headaches. So that's network installation, configuration, security, and monitoring, server setup and maintenance cloud data storage, email management and security, antivirus management, industry-specific compliance. So this is like HIPAA, financial services, insurance, credit cards, that kind of thing, and even custom software implementation like CRM and HR tools. So while you focus on making your business successful, let LMS Tech secure IT. I trust LMS Tech with the security for my business here at Undaunted Life, so I think you should give them a shot as well. So to receive your free IT and data security assessment, visit this website, getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech. Don't risk your data ending up in the wrong hands. Invite the experts in to protect your business. Again, the site is getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech to get your free assessment. The links to all of that will be in the show notes as well. I love how you uh, how you brought that up and actually just reminded me of a sermon that my pastor gave yesterday where he was talking about Luke 15 or it was uh, it was Luke 16. He was talking about the rich man and Lazarus and he was basically talking, you know, Lazarus is this pathetic, you know, human being. This is a different Lazarus in the parable, the only parable where Jesus actually names one of the characters. And then, you know, later on down the road, he actually raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. I'm sure it was just a coinky dink, but like at that exact moment, uh, you know, whenever they're having this discussion and Abraham is kind of talking, it's like, look to the rich man, you, you got your riches and your comfort and your glory on earth. Okay. Like, and not like, Hey, you can only have one or the other, but it's like, you already, you already got yours. Okay. And you're not in control here. You were in control. You were the master. You had the big kingdom and the most wealth, but you're just not in control anymore. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense where it's like, okay, who are you winning? Back back when this podcast, Mark, had tens of listeners as opposed to the amount of audience we have now, I worked just as hard because it's like, look, I, I owe it to my audience to give them a good product. I owe it to the people I'm interviewing to, to have a good interview, but I technically have an audience of one. And whether this becomes bigger than the Joe Rogan experience, stays the size that it is now, or completely goes away, I have to honor God with what I'm doing with the talents and opportunities that he's given me, I guess is the way to say it. Yeah, you know, and the beauty of that, the beauty of that, Kyle, and, and, and may God bless you in what you're doing, is you have the assurance of Proverbs 3, which is uh, many people, one of their favorite scriptures. But, but it, it's the proverb that says, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, if in all your ways you'll acknowledge him, he will make your path straight. And and uh, before I went to law school, I took a degree in Hebrew and I, and I still read Hebrew. I translated the, the, the Bible basically for, for my undergraduate. And and there is a an aspect to the Hebrew verb there. It's, it's called, if anybody actually knows Hebrew, it's the PL form of the verb, but but it's an aspect that says God himself is going to make your path straight. You may be wandering a little to the left, a little to the right, trying to do the best you can, but if you're acknowledging him, he will take you and put you on a straight path to where you ought to go in his will. And that's what we're all seeking after or should be anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the case. And, and I hear that and I hear myself say it, but the reason I say it is because it's a reminder to me. It's it's not because, hey, I've checked this box off for eternity. It's like yeah. I get wayward very, very easily. I'm very drawn to shiny things. And so I will end up going that direction. Now, I have one more legal-based question before we move on to some of the work that you've done. Obviously, Hollywood kind of gives us our ideas as to what relationships should be like, what a war is like, or what whatever thing is like. And obviously there have been a lot of legal dramas, right? Whether it's on the silver screen or on the little screen, there's all these legal dramas and they're typically around 
trials, right? Because that's those are like the sexy ones, right? So it's the murder trial or it's the the crazy trial. It's Donald Trump on trial. It's whatever those things. And it's, you know, you got both people, they're in the courtroom. You got the victims there. You got the families there. And then you got the attorneys and the judge and everybody's got a personality. It's this big deal. I want you to just give me the behind the scenes look. What are the the common misperceptions about how trials actually go versus Matthew McConaughey, you know, doing it, you know, in his you know, in his his sexy twang and you know, kind of making his thing go down and you know, bring bringing it out that way? Like, help help me understand. I mean, are you pounding on the desk and trying to get the guy to say that you know he he demanded the code red happen? Like, you know, give it to me. What what is it really like? <laughs> I love I love the way you've interwoven all of these TV shows and movies together yeah. in that question. You clearly you get an A plus for having tuned into legal drama. There you so, go. So um, it's interesting because some is fairly realistic, uh, some is uh, a bit out there and and much more um, uh, fashioned maybe for for the screen than for reality. Uh, I do believe that there's room for drama in the courtroom. I've tried cases where um, uh, I've, I've brought in a, a bale of hay, a huge bale of hay, uh, 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 and, and put needles inside of it and ask witnesses how you can find the needle in the haystack or bale of hay. I've tried cases where I've had huge three foot long Lego bridges made out of Legos that I've caused to fall apart in front of the jury. Uh, I've tried cases where we've, we've, we've put on a show. I've put on a show uh, in, in front of the jury in a very real sense. Uh, uh, some of my cases are cases that have been the subject of movies. There's a movie Chris Evans made called Puncture uh, in the U.S. release. It was called Puncture. Uh, um, and, and it concerns one of my cases that dealt with uh, the antitrust aspect of, of the kind of syringes and needles that are sold and how it contributed to the AIDS crisis and, and things like that. Um, uh, you know, it, there are uh, lots of, of shows that have a great bit of accuracy to them. Um, there's plenty of table pounding and, and uh, drama. But having said that, 95% of the lawyers out there are boring and their, <laughs> their trials are boring. And if you get called to jury duty, it's a snooze fest. And, and the most important friend you'll have in many trials is caffeine. Um, even, even I was trying a case one time and I had gone, um, uh, Kyle, I'd gone like three or four years without caffeine. I had just decided I was addicted to it. I needed to do something about it. And I, by golly, was going to conquer it. So for truly three or four years, I hadn't had any caffeine. And I'm trying this case and it and it deals with this piece of machinery that had left this poor fellow paralyzed from the waist down. And the lawyer on the other side was so stinking boring. I was dying. And it's the afternoon. And I am the lawyer. I mean, I'm trying this case for this poor paralyzed man. And, and it's his one day in court. It's the most important thing I could be doing right then. And I find myself while the other lawyer's talking, going to sleep at counsel table. I'm dying up there. It is so boring. And I turned around to Jesse is one of my fellows who, who works for me and, and helps me in trial. He's sitting back in the audience. And I turned around to him and I, I did one of those things where it looks like you're trying to drink something with your finger and your pinky out, you know, as you bring it up yeah. to your mouth. And I look at him, I go, diet Coke now. I just had to have caffeine or I wasn't going to make it through because the guy was so boring. So I'm not saying it's all like TV, but I'm saying the great lawyers can make it like TV. I will say as well, the same thing can be said for just about any profession that people think is sexy. So some people think being a big time pastor is sexy. Some people think being a podcaster is sexy or a professional athlete, but it's like, there's always that thing or that part of it that is just super not glorious. And so like people love 
whenever I do these interviews, cause they're like, you seem really engaged with the content, blah, blah. I was like, yes, because I spend the time reading all their books before they come on so that I can connect it to this and connect it to that. As opposed to what most people do, which is just to take the, you know, 10 questions that are on the insert on the book that they got from the publisher and just ask those because it's just easier. So let's actually transition into the books that you've written. So you wrote a series, it's the on trial series. So it's got three books. The first one was Christianity on trial. And then you went, Atheism on Trial, that's probably my favorite cover of the ones that you did. And then this last one, which is going to be the, the main focus of our discussion today, which is Religions on Trial. So since we're going to spend a lot of time with Religions on Trial, I don't want you to give us a 30,000-foot overview of that because we're really going to dig in. But give us an overview of why you wrote Christianity on Trial. Did you intend to write you know, this you know, trilogy of books. Why did you then take on atheism? And so give us the 30,000 foot view on both of those. And then we'll dig into the third one, which you said was your favorite. So we're going to make you dig in. All right. That's great, Kyle. So I put my books in three buckets. Uh, I've got a bucket that's my legal books. Okay. That's, that's all law. Fine. Well and good. And then I've got kind of two buckets of books outside of that. I've got a bucket of books that, that Baylor University publishes that are daily devotionals and teachings. Uh, there's one for each day of the year. And that's, I'm into series. So I did Psalms for living and then Torah for living, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. You haven't lived till you've tried to, to write a daily teaching devotional out of how many stones Moses puts in the breastplate for the high priest and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But uh, I did uh, uh, Psalms for Living, Torah for Living, and then uh, Jesus for Living, and then Minor Prophets for Living, which is coming out this December. And then uh, uh, I'm writing right now Epistles for Living. So I've got that bucket of books, but then my IVP bucket that you've got in front of you today that we've been talking about uh, started out with Christianity on Trial. And what I wanted to do is kind of write a book. Uh, our son is an academic and he was getting his PhD uh, uh, doctorate in philosophy and logic at Oxford University. And I got to meet a lot of his friends. And um, there were a lot that, that thought Christianity was just something for the uneducated masses. But once you got, got smart, uh, uh, you didn't need such things. And I thought, you know, these are people who are smart, but are, are not too smart um, because Christianity does make sense. It's not it, it is it is a faith for anybody who's a truth seeker, regardless of their education level, because truth is whatever truth is. And I believe Christianity is is true. So I wrote the book with the asking the basic questions. If I put this on trial to try to find the truth, could I prove the truth, the fundamental truths of Christianity and how would I go about doing it? And those include questions like, is there a God? If so, what kind of God? Um, is there really such a thing as free moral choice? Do I get to make choices and decisions? Uh, um, uh, is there is there such an idea that this God would care for me and even give a whit that I exist, much less die for me? You know, what about the audacity of the resurrection and, and that kind of claim and this idea that there's eternity beyond the, the temporal and the moment um, and the, this lifetime? So those I address there, it, it had a good reception. It went through a number of different printings and and uh, which shows you my mom's still alive and buying it over and over to give away. And uh, um, it, it, it worked out well. And so I thought, well, I'd like to go into a little more depth because a lot of my friends that I know in my, my occupational world um, uh, are atheists and agnostics. And I spend a lot of time talking to them. So I thought, I think I'm going to really go into more depth on that. And, and the printer, the publisher, IVP, asked me to um, do an entire book, in essence, dedicated to the idea of atheism or agnosticism. How do we put that on trial and what do we do about it if we're trying to prove or disprove something? And that was the second volume. And then they said, wouldn't it be nice to finish this out as a trilogy? And why don't you make an assessment or a look 
at various world religions and seeing how they understand and explain life and whether or not you find those to be viable options that themselves could carry the day in a court of law. And that was the third volume, Religions on Trial. And so in Religions on Trial, you cover Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, and then a couple of phrases that, that you kind of are terms that you came up with, which is secular spiritualism and secular Christianity. And so I guess the first question, which I'm not going to have you answer is how the heck do you get all that into a 200 page book? I mean, it's just like super, this thing's like dense, like you could like knock out a cow with this thing. That's how dense it is. But it seems like you came up with a, you know, a rubric or a, or a matrix of, or a process, whatever you want to call it for how you're going to approach your descriptions of these religions. Because again, you could spend the rest of your life just breaking down Islam and, and how it kind of manifests in our everyday world or something like that. But you ask six questions in the book, and this allows you to kind of go through all these different religions. So I'll read the questions here and have you flow on them. Number one, is the view objectively consistent with the world? Number two, is the view subjectively consistent with who and what I am? Number three, is there cross consistency? Number four, is it livable? Number five, does it answer the big questions? And number six, does it make for good people and good societies? So why those six questions? Well, I wanted to try and do a fair assessment of these various faiths. And as you point out, each one could be subject to a 1,000-page dissertation and, and analysis and examination. But one of the things that happens when you're a courtroom lawyer trying the cases that I try um, uh, a lot of these cases are, as you noted, high profile. You're going to have the media there. They're going to get written up. Uh, I tried the cases that proved asbestos was in Johnson and Johnson's baby powder, for example, and caused them to pull their talc based baby powder around the world and replace it with cornstarch instead. Uh, uh, I tried the opioid cases uh, uh, on a national scale that held the pharmaceutical com I mean, held the, the pharmacies. Uh, the Walgreens, CVS, uh, uh, Walmart pharmacies uh, responsible for part of that behavior and brought them to the, the table to try to resolve some of the opioid problems in the country. Um, in, in all of those cases, high profile, huge ramifications, worldwide ramifications, billions and billions of dollars on the line. The judge in each of those cases said you have X number of weeks to put on your case. You have to do it in this small amount of time. I could have spent six months trying either of the two cases I've just given you as an example. But the judge said, Lanier, you get three weeks to put on your case, not six months, three weeks. So what you learn to do as a trial lawyer in that situation is you learn to find the central points of focus that themselves will prove or disprove your case. And when you get those central points of focus, you, you don't have to go beyond it. It's kind of like if you're going to sink a battleship, you, if you put uh, two big holes in that battleship that cannot be repaired, it can go down. You don't have to hit it with a bunch of more you know, ammunition and fire and, and 30 small holes and all the rest, the two big holes sink it. So I looked at these six criteria and I said, if I can analyze a world system by these six criteria, I should be able to make some, some valid decisions about what is fairly accurate and what is not. And so that's why I use those criteria to assess these various um, uh, worldviews. Well, and one thing that I really appreciate about that approach is it's similar to whenever I advise people that are giving presentations or creating content or things like that. It's like, look, your knowledge is worthless if it can't be transferred. Okay. And so if you can't transfer the content to me in a way that is digestible for me, it doesn't really matter. So how can I 
read a 500 page Eric Metaxas book and then get a 20 minute interview with him and make it satisfactory for the audience. It's because I'm not asking him about random things. I'm asking him about core things, right? So I'm not asking him about, you know, in the book about Bonhoeffer, I wouldn't be asking him about this one little thing that happened in his childhood that didn't really lead to any substantive change in his life. I'm going to ask him about the core things like, you know, him trying to kill Hitler, you know, cool stuff like that. So I'm going to start going through a little bit by little. And again, we're going to be just hitting little parts of each of these chapters. You got to go and get religions on trial to check it out. It will be in the show notes, but let's talk about Hinduism. So that's one of the first ones that you tackle. The biggest problem with Hinduism is that it's a religion that is basically anything, something someone wants it to be. So that's a concern for me, you know, with Republicans right now, looking at someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, he's a Hindu and he's like, he's, he's talking about God. It's like, Hey buddy, what do you mean by that? Because it's obviously all over the place with what they believe. And I'll elucidate it with a, with a quote here from that chapter. One person's Hindu beliefs can be quite different from another's, even contradictory. There is no set of beliefs or orthodoxy, no national or international structure or hierarchy, no clear set of scriptures, and no founder. It is almost open season on what one believes when claiming to be Hindu. So, Mark, what in the world is a Hindu? What in the world do they? How do you even identify as one? Yeah, I think if you claim it, you 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 can just say I'm a Hindu. Well, what does that mean? Okay. Yeah, it means whatever I want it to mean. Now, it's, yeah. you know, technically, maybe it's not so loosey goosey. But the idea behind Hinduism is that there are uh, so many roads and so many options and so many variables that get you to some base level of identity that explains your essence and your future. And and I have problems with that. Uh, you know, it, it, it might, if I'm looking for a religion to confirm what I already believe, then sure, Hinduism works great. But if I'm looking for a faith that is objectively true, that I'm willing to change my beliefs to grab onto, Hinduism to me just doesn't seem to do anything at all. Uh, I, I live in Houston, Texas. I have um, grandkids. We have grandkids and kids uh, uh, in Florida on the East Coast, and we have grandkids and kids in uh, uh, California on the West Coast uh, in L.A. Now, Interstate 10 will drive me to L.A. or it will drive me to Florida. It depends on whether I turn right or left as I'm leaving my house. <laughs> but Interstate 10, if I turn, they don't both, if I turn right and I head out to California, it will not get me to Florida. It just doesn't make sense in the real world to say, hey, all roads lead to the same place. No, they don't. I, they won't get me even remotely to Chicago. And so, so, in the, in the world, it doesn't make sense that we're going to be able to just mishmash together anything we believe and, and consider it right. Uh, uh, there, there really is right. There really are truths. And, and I want to find those. I don't want to take the lazy way out. I don't want to take the easy way out. And I don't want to take the way out that just confirms me in my comfort zone of what I want to be true as opposed to what seems to really be true. Well, as I hear you talk right now, Mark, and as I was reading through that chapter, it's like if any of the major religions could be considered a postmodern religion, it would be Hinduism because yeah. postmodernism basically says whatever's true for you is true for you know you and your truth matters over anyone else's truth. There's no objective truth where there's no objective standard in Hinduism at all either. And so we'll move off of Hinduism. We'll stop picking on them. Now we'll pick on Buddhism. So I want to read a quote from uh, your book here. Buddhism seeks to address the suffering with the promise of the adherent finding release through the practice of Buddha's teachings. And so if anyone knows anything about Buddhism, aside from the fact that, you know, some of these monks are really, really good at Kung Fu or whatever, that kind of nonsense is the biggest part is the avoidance of suffering. 
and the controlling of one's psyche and mind to where suffering doesn't even come into play. And we've seen extreme examples of that. The Rage Against the Machine album cover uh, reminds me of that where, you know, you had a monk that basically burned himself alive and didn't so much as scream out or any of that because, you know, supposedly he had got so much control over his physical pain and the, the, the things around him and they, they can sit in cold water for 12 days at a time and not even get cold. Like it's that type of thing. But the whole thing is about the, you know, basically avoidance of suffering. Why is that such a big deal for people, especially in a modern era where it's like, yeah, everyone's trying to avoid suffering at all times. That's why we live indoors and eat food that's prepared for us by somebody else. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting with each of these religious faiths that we're looking at, I can find elements of truth in them. Uh, I can find elements of, of things that I admire and things that, that uh, I think are, are based, well-based in God's truth. The problem is, in addition to what may be a, a popcorn kernel of truth here and there, there's a massive amount of, of things that, that aren't valid. Right. And, and you've put your finger on one for me with Buddhism. The Buddhist approach to suffering, which is based on the four noble truths of Buddha, the Buddhist approach to suffering is basically if you if you can ignore it and don't want it and, and, and don't have any desires and don't have any wants, then you're not going to have any suffering. Well, A, I don't agree with that. Yeah, suffering is coming for everybody. Yeah. Suffering is coming for everybody. B. The question to me is, can we find joy in the midst of suffering? And I think with Christ we can because we find we're fellowshipping with his suffering. He suffers with us. But I think very importantly, maybe most importantly, see, we are called by God into this world to combat suffering, not by denying its reality but by coming to full force with whatever God's given us the resource to do, to whip it. Right. If we see someone who is suffering, we try to come to their aid. We don't say, hey, just ignore it, disassociate from it, get rid of your own values and wants and needs, and your suffering will go away. If there's someone out there who's abusing children, sexually abusing children, trafficking in young women, um, peddling suffering and misery. We're not called to tell those young women being trafficked, disassociate from your body and disassociate from this world so it's not suffering when you're forced. No, we're called as God's children to come in there with the strength and power of a resurrection God and fight that evil, fight disease, fight um, economic problems, fight the people who are trying to steal and cheat and lie and destroy. We're called to establish, we're called to make peace in this world, not in the sense of, oh, just let them do what they want to do, but to fight for peace when the need is there. And I think that suffering in this world is so real, we can find joy and we can find peace in spite of the suffering, but we're still called to combat the suffering, which is what Jesus himself did when faced with disease, when faced with people in want and people in need, Jesus fought against suffering and he calls us to follow him. I absolutely love that answer because I don't, whether you knew this or not, it doesn't really matter, but Undaunted Life is here to equip men to push back darkness, not to equip men to discover darkness, not to equip men to be able to correctly categorize darkness, but to push it back. That is an active thing. And aren't, Mark, aren't we more attracted to stories of resilience and overcoming as opposed to stories of where people avoided pain. Like who's going to read an autobiography about somebody who lived a very cush life that never took any risks, that never had any failures and never had anything that they needed to overcome. That's not a story that gets written. That's not a movie that gets made. And so I think this whole Buddhist mindset of like, okay, we're just going to avoid these things. It's like, well, you can think it all you want, 
And you could take yourself through whatever mental masturbation you want to be doing at that exact moment. But whatever's happening to you is happening to you. Like, can you smile in the midst of it? Or are you just going to pretend like it's not happening? So I think we're on the same page here. Now, yeah. you wrote a chapter about Judaism. And I'm just going to short sell the entire chapter because I don't really feel like we need to talk about it because Jews don't believe in Jesus. That's pretty much the story. But what I do want to talk about is something from your chapter where you knew the great justice Antonin Scalia, and you didn't just know him in the sense that you shook his hand once at a you know rubber chicken dinner party or something like that, but you actually knew the guy. You actually got to spend time with him. And for me, as a conservative, I think Justice Clarence Thomas is the goat. I think he needs to be protected with every single thing that could possibly protect a human being. But Antonin Scalia the, the two of them, in terms of their conservative jurisprudence, are two of the most important jurists in, in modernity. And I don't think I'm being hyperbolic in saying that. But I don't even have a question, Mark. Just talk to me about Antonin Scalia and how you guys were buddies. So he was a dear friend, and I miss him still today. I was talking about him the other day. Um, I, I had a chance to – I first met him when we were on a TV show together. And uh, it, it was fascinating. I knew who he was, obviously. I mean, I'm a lawyer, right? Uh, uh, and I was amazed that, that he knew who I was and, and he knew uh, uh, some of my cases and successes. And, and this was uh, about 20 years ago. And, and we became friends uh, maybe 15 years ago. Um, and we started doing stuff together. I've been on many hunting weekends uh, with him. I've been on many plane flights. You know, one of my favorite plane flights uh, he and I were, were flying uh, back uh, uh, to uh, from, I think, Uvalde, Texas may have been where, where we were hunting. And I had him, we, we, we were blessed to have, we blessed to have airplanes. So I had him on our airplane flying him back to D.C. Uh, so he, he could go back to work. And on the airplane, uh, I had two of my other lawyers on the plane with us. So there's just the four of us. Uh, we're, we're just a little bit out. Scalia slaps me on the arm. And because and we're sitting right next to each other. And he says to me, he says, uh, hey, you like to sing, don't you? And I said, sure. He said, uh, he said, West Side Story. Do you think we can sing the entire soundtrack before we land in D.C.? And I looked at him and I just started, held up my right hand. I started snapping my fingers. Mm. And then together we went, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. And he's just singing full voice. And we, we lost the lyrics during Officer Krupke. But other than that, we basically made it through the soundtrack. He was a delightful man. I took him alligator hunting one time in the swamps of Louisiana. And uh, uh, he had brought his own gun. And when you're alligator hunting, you basically have to hit the alligator right between the eyes. That's the only place where it's, it's tender enough for the bullet to go in. Well, he's got his rifle and, and he's, he's brought it with him. So he's ready to go. But then he found out that there were some automatic rifles available. And so he said, give me one of those. I want one of them automatic rifles. I'm going to use that. So it's he and I in this little skip, flat bottom skip in the swamps surrounded by all these alligators and there's a couple other guys that are in their skiffs and we're out there well he stands up doing his best rambo he stands up with that automatic rifle and just starts and he can't even hold it sturdy and the bullets are bouncing all over the place well i had this cajun sharpshooter on the shore Okay. And, and he sees what's happening and he realizes Scalia is no more going to hit that alligator in the middle of the eyes than the man in the moon. All Scalia is going to do is bounce a bullet into somebody else. So my, my Cajun sharpshooter from the shore just goes clink with one shot that's lost in the barrage coming out of the AR that Scalia's got. And, and sure enough, it hits the alligator right between the eyes and the alligator's dead and it's happening. And Scalia just Holds his gun up in victory. I got him. I got him. I got him. <laughs> and uh, uh, took a picture when we got back to shore, holding up these huge alligator jaws and all. Um, he he was he was a good guy. <laughs> I, I feel like fun. 
Mark, I feel like anytime someone was a personal friend of the guy, they have a story similar to that, just how gregarious he was and kind of larger than life. And that's just kind of his deal. And I won't go too much farther down that road because we could spend the rest of our time today just talking about him. But and again, I know I short, shorted the uh, the chapter on, on Judaism. You do a great job in that. But I do want to go ahead and move on to Islam. So obviously a lot of people have opinions about Islam and you know some of them are true and some are not. But I want to really focus in on the language of extremism versus fundamentalism. So here's a quote from your book. Because some extremist Muslims in zeal and perhaps anger bordering on hatred have perpetuated horrible deeds under the flag of faith, some write off the entire Muslim religion. Now, I don't like it when people talk about quote unquote Muslim extremism. And the reason is, is because I really appreciate the work of the late Nabil Qureshi, who was a Muslim his entire life, became a Christian. But whenever he talks about Islam from a place of true understanding, because he used to be basically a, a Muslim apologist, he talks about how the, the people that are like in ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda and these different groups, they're not extremists. They're fundamentalists. They are following the least abrogated of all the texts in the Quran, which is the ninth surah. They're following it to the T because at that point in Muhammad's life, he was like, yeah, all that peace talk that I said back in the day, that's gone now. That's done. Here we are. And the ninth surah is the bloodiest, most violent uh you know, surah in the entire Quran. And so uh, again, most people just say it because it's colloquial to just say extreme uh, Muslim or extremist Muslim. But do you feel like that maybe sets us up to think of it like, oh, they're the outliers as opposed to the true believers? Well, I, I don't know, because here, here's the, 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 the give and take on that. Um, if if I if, all right, a Muslim uh, a friend of mine, not not close friends, but but have had lunch with him and spent time with him is is um, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, basketball center for the Houston Rockets. He's as kind and gentle a person as you're going to find. He is very devout in his Muslim beliefs. He doesn't understand the ninth surah to be the ruling surah in that way. And I liken those who do these fundamentalists, as you're calling them, um, uh, extremists, as I call them, in the sense that they are outliers to what is most of the people who practice Islam. Um, um, they're, they're outliers in a sense, but yet there's a lot of them. I don't mean to minimize that, but but they're, they're functionally the equivalent for some in Islam that the extremist Judas, Judaists are who say, I'm going to take the Old Testament injunction and instruction by God to destroy and kill everyone who lives within the Holy Lands and get them out of the Holy Lands and not leave anyone alive uh, like should have been done at Ai should have been done at Jericho, should have been done when God says to do it. God says, don't let the infidels live within the confines of the Holy Land. Back then, that's never been changed. Boom, let's kill. There are some Jewish people who hold that view, but they're not mainstream. They're extremists to their religion. You may want to say they're fundamentalists to their religion, I don't know the vocabulary. What, what I want people to understand is there, you can take all of Islam from one end of the bell curve to the other, the meat, the extremists, the mainstream, all of them, good, kind, wonderful people, horribly harsh, deluded people, all of them, their faith is not sustainable if you examine it fairly. Islam claims to be a historical religion based on history, based upon God giving it to Muhammad the prophet exactly the way it's true, right, and pure. And the bottom line is, if you examine the Quran carefully, it is not historically accurate. It has too many mistakes that are glaring mistakes, that are obvious mistakes, that you have to do some mental gymnastics that would exceed what gets a gold medal at the Olympics if you wanted to try and, and accept it as true. So most Muslims just don't address those issues. They put on blinders 
to the truth and they wind up with a religious faith that's not accurate, whether they're, quote, mainstream or fundamentalists or extremists or wherever they are on the spectrum. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, and to, to be fair and to also honor the remainder of our time left today, because we're, you know, we got around to a close at some point. I have so many more questions about that, but we got to move on because the main thing I wanted to talk to you about here, we are 45 minutes in. So here's the treat for the people still hanging around. You address Mormonism. So I have several questions about Mormonism. Uh, one thing that drives me absolutely insane, Mark, is how people will always qualify their, their negative uh, opinions about Mormonism. And they'll just talk about how, well, you know, Mormons are just so nice. And I think in like the last, you know, sentence or two of your chapter on Mormonism, you basically talk about, oh, I've got a lot of friends that are Mormons and are so nice. And it's like, okay, it's, it's okay for people to be nice, but are they wrong or not? The thing for me, Mark, is I don't even understand how Mormonism is a thing. I don't even understand how it's a thing. The belief system seems so absolutely preposterous. I have no idea why people take it seriously. I don't understand why we can't just say, yeah, Joseph Smith was a really, really smart and magnetic con man and just move on. Like, how did it capture so many people? Like, I don't, how is this still a thing today? How is this not just, you know, religion of a bygone era? First of all, I think your assessment is dead on. I, I think Joseph Smith was exactly that. Um, yeah. A semi-charismatic con man in the right place at the right time to perpetrate a con that has conquered uh, a, a great deal of, of human population. Um, now, having said that, Oh, yeah, I'm quick to say I've got some Mormon friends who are real nice. I got a lot yep. of pagan friends that are real nice. Doesn't sure. make them right. Yeah. Doesn't even remotely make them right. But, hey, uh, uh, they're nice. And and I appreciate what some Mormons value as family. I don't like the way other Mormons value that. But the bottom line is, this is like what I was saying about Islam. You just can't read it in its historical sense and believe that it's true. You can't fairly do that. And, and I could have written books upon books just off of that. I grew up in Rochester, New York, right outside of uh, Rochester is, is uh, uh, Hill Camorra. And I went to the big Mormon uh, play, the uh, festival exhibition play there uh, that they do annually or did at least back in the 60s when I was growing up. Um, I, look, the whole thing just doesn't hold water. With due respect to, to Mormons, I, I just challenge them to look into the historicity of their faith because it's just not valid. It's it's a con. Yeah, I don't, uh, again, most people don't want to be challenged on the way they do life. They want to be validated. And so that, that of course, you know, extends to religions. But if I had to put my finger on what I would consider to be the most nefarious thing about Mormonism, it's the claim that they have an additional revelation from God that is outside of the accepted biblical canon, okay? Now, as I was thinking through this, I might be making a connection that's not there, so you you tell me how you feel about this, but immediately when I had that, when you were describing the additional revelations in the chapter, in the margins of the, my book, I wrote woke churches because what modern liberal woke churches do is they act as if they've got some higher level of understanding, which is kind of Gnostic. And they think because of my lived experience or because of where culture is right now in the West, here's how we should apply scripture. Here are the, the things that we're going to put on top of scripture. Hey, you know what? We're just going to look at critical race theory. So this is a message to the Matt Chandlers and the J.D. Greers and the you know Southern Baptist Convention folks that just want critical race theory to be a lens through which we view the plight of the American Christian of color. It's like they're taking something and putting it on top of scripture and they're filtering the message through that as opposed to the opposite, which is like, hey, what does scripture say about this worldview? And if you use that matrix, you're going to see the worldview as what it is, which is coming from the pits of hell. And so I see the Mormon church and what they're doing with additional revolution or, or revelations rather similar to what modern liberal woke churches are doing. Do you see the connection? Yeah, I, I do. You know, my, my big challenge in my world and in my teaching world, because I, I teach every Sunday at church and on the Internet, my, my big challenge is not to take my modern ideas 
and use them to bootstrap onto scripture to understand scripture in, in a way that, that I like with my modern revelation, if you will, my big goal is to do the exact opposite. It's to try to go back and understand scripture within the framework that it was originally written so that I can adapt my view of the world and my view of life to those fundamental truths that are expressed within the original intent of scripture. I, I'm not looking to add to it. I'm looking to purify my understanding of it, if that makes a sense. Mm -hmm. No, it does make sense. And that's the thing is we have to make sure we're putting the correct or understanding that there is scaffolding under these worldviews and is what is the scaffolding made of, right? And so that can even get into scripture like, have you built your, you know, your house on the foundation of sand or of rock? I think it all goes the same way. So if that's the number one most nefarious thing about Mormonism to me, or as I've already kind of talked about earlier, the second most nefarious thing is how the contemporary revelations that they're having. So they've got additional revelations, but they've also well, they got, got to, they got, <laughs> they got to, because they've got they get a more. revelation. They get a quote revelation in the 1800s that the 10 lost tribes of Israel from six, 700 BC became the American Indians. Right. And then they reach a point, they were native Americans, I should say. Then they reach a point where DNA is uncovered by science, you're able to look at the DNA of the Native Americans and find out they ain't even 1% Jewish. Right. There's no Jewish history and blood in them. And so they've got to rewrite their last revelation because science has shown it to be pooey. Right. So with the Native Americans being connected to the ancient Jews, uh, you have their contemporary revela revelations about race. They didn't used to allow people of color to serve in the Mormon church. Now they do about polygamy. They made changes about that so they could, you know, be established in Utah as a state or whatever. And before long, you can assume they're going to do the same thing with the LGBTQ folks. But there's a, a quick quote from the chapter that I'll read here. So the Mormon church is able to do a 180 on core tenets of teaching as science and society make it necessary, claiming new prophetic insights. Yet it indicts the historical Christian church for changing as it grew in its understanding and insights of scripture. So talk to me just a little bit more about these additional insights, because it's like that should be the big blinking sign to anyone that's either Mormon or Mormon sympathetic. That's like, wait a minute, like, there's nothing in in these holy texts. There's nothing there that people really understand to be this way, but then the church just makes a decision. It seems like it was a decision made because of a committee meeting, not because God told them to. Yeah, and 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 what I was hinting at in that that quote that you pulled out is the Mormons will take to task Christianity because the understanding of God as Trinity as threeness is expressed in the subsequent centuries to the New Testament writings. The, the concept, though, is so clear. It's just trying to understand the New Testament. It's not a concept that was written up brand new, fresh, wholesale out of new cloth. It is an effort to understand the doctrine that is already built into Scripture, present in Scripture. On the other hand, the Mormons will totally brand new, bring up brand new ideas. So you've got in the original Mormon concept, you've got the idea that uh, black people are like the renegade offspring uh, from, from the father, uh, big cosmic father God. Uh, the, the, you had them in the children in three buckets. There were the, those who followed the elder son, Jesus, in terms of how they wanted to live on earth. Those who followed the younger son, who was just a troublemaker, Satan, who's the brother of Jesus. And then you've got the ones that couldn't decide which bucket to get into. So they're born black as kind of their curse and to show who they are. Well, that doesn't work now. So what are they going to do? They got to totally rewrite that kind of stuff or they won't have an existence in most cultures uh, outside of maybe where the clan is still operating. And so, uh, you, you know, you, you, you just see those huge modifications and you just say, mercy, take the blinders off and see what you're looking at. I absolutely agree with that. The, the blinders, uh, again, we, we will just absolutely fool ourselves and we will choose to do it. 
But the last thing on Mormonism before we kind of wrap up, because we do need to kind of wind to a close here. I feel like there are a lot of Christians, Mark, that think Mormons are Christians. And then there are a lot of Mormons that think that they're Christians as well. And I had a discussion with a guy yesterday, and I want to be careful with how I couch it because it could seem, you know, heretical to even mention it this way. But I, I asked him, I go, hey, could Mormons be kind of like how some people view Catholics or very liberal denominations of particular churches and be like, hey, they're right about the core stuff, like about putting their faith in Jesus, but it's all this other extra crap that, you know, they'll get to heaven one day and God will be like, what a dummy. You actually believe that? Come on, I gave you the word and you put you put a bunch of crap on top of it. Is it that type of thing or is is Mormonism just in and of itself? No, this is a cult. These people are trying to win people over. I even heard someone say that they grew up around a bunch of Mormons and they actually train on how to convince Christians that they too are Christians as well by how they describe things and by the language that they use. I know that's kind of a convoluted question, but what are your thoughts on that? Is it Could Mormon just be like a wayward version of Christianity or is it just way off in left field? Well, you know, I, I don't want to – I think that maybe we need to separate out individual Mormons uh, mm. from Mormonism. Let's say you've got a Mormon who understands that, yeah, the Bible is is accurate too, and they spend time reading, and they read John 3.16, and they read Romans, and they understand if they confess with their mouth and, and they believe with their heart that, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that they'll be saved, and they do that even though they've got all that other junk piled on. I mean, God's in the saving business. God's trying to look for everyone within his justice that he can possibly save. So I'm not going to sit here and cast a judgment upon that, but I am going to say the Mormon faith, as it is professed uh, in practice, as it is professed on the websites, as it is professed within their covenants and doctrines, their Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, that Mormon faith has got a bunch of stuff that is antithetical and, and opposite of genuine Christian thought. I'm, I'm glad you described it the way that you did, because I feel like I even got lost in my own question, because the same thing can be said about Catholics, because with within Catholicism, it's like, okay, there are individual Catholics that have put their faith in Christ for their salvation, and then there are others just that are just kind of culturally Catholic, and they go and get the wafer and the blood and you know, all that kind of stuff, and they just don't have any belief. It's similar to someone going to a Southern Baptist church that just kind of goes in there, you know, a few Sundays a month because it makes them feel good. And then they ride home, you know, listening to country music, and then they go vote for the local Republican candidate and they feel like that's good enough to get them to heaven. So uh, one thing that I normally do on my podcast is I feel like I do a pretty good job of pacing and I don't leave anything on the table, but here I am, we're at the very end of our time, Mark, and I'm going to have to mush together two things that I wanted to actually spend some time in because I've just gotten so excited about other parts of what we were saying. So you wrap up your book, Religions on Trial, by talking about secular spiritualism and secular Christianity. So again, I'm setting you up poorly here, but what are those things, secular spiritualism and secular Christianity, and why should they concern us? I'll put them in a nutshell. Okay. Secular spiritualism, these are people who love the idea of spirituality, but don't want to embrace faith in God. Hmm. And, and um, the, the, these are the people who are spiritual without religion. And then you've got those people who are going to the church like you indicated, um, but whose hearts are far from being Christ-like, who, who have no trouble not just stopping for someone in need, but just running over them in a hurry to get home to watch the ball game. Uh, you, you've got people so, who are in churches and are religious, but are far from spiritual. So you, you've got these two almost opposites of each other, people who, who claim to be spiritual but aren't religious and people who claim to be religious but aren't spiritual. And what God calls us to be is, and, and what's true and valid, is, is a true, vibrant faith that changes who we are, where we're transformed in our minds, as Paul says in Romans, from thinking the way the world thinks to thinking the way God thinks. And that only comes from being in that relationship with God that is established through one door alone, and that door is Jesus Christ. 
And through the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, we are, I'll go lawyer on you, we are declared by God not guilty. And, and, and the big problem from a legal perspective is how can God, a just God, declare someone guilty, not guilty? And the only way to do it is if someone's already paid the penalty. And so if we're in that relationship, truly, then that will drive us in our spirituality. You can be as spiritual as you want, but if you're not in a relationship with God, you're, you're, you're not going to, you won't win the trial. You can be as religious as you want, but if you're not spiritual with God and in relationship with God, it doesn't matter. All you're doing is punching buttons and, and, and checking lists. And so that's it in a nutshell for me. Well, Mark, it's like you're a professional at this because that's a hell of a way to end an interview by bringing the gospel and the fire to everybody. But just like your books, we seem to squish a whole lot of great stuff into a very short time period. So, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Kyle, blessings on you and may God bless everyone who's listened to this. And I pray your, 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 your audience just grows. Keep doing your good work, buddy. Mark Lanier, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Mark Lanier. But before we let you go, we are going to do a Queer Resilience Boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is I've got a link to the Amazon page where you can check out all of his books because he's got the three books that we talked about today, but then he's got a whole lot of other ones on there so you guys can go and check it out. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>